This evening, I am going to be preaching on Exodus 21. Uh, not a whole chapter, but really the kind of the just the difficult parts of it, which really makes up a good chunk of the chapter. We read it earlier in the service. I was intending to preach on it at some point during my series on the Old Covenant. Um, what do we do with these passages that are so disturbing to our modern Western sensibilities, um, which seem, these passages which seem to be in conflict with what we think of God, what we think we know of God, what do we do with these difficult things that we read in the Old Testament. And so at some point I was going to address that, um, otherwise it would be to pass by an elephant in the room. But in God's providence we came uh, today to Exodus 21 in our systematic reading of the scriptures as we progress every week. I don't know if you noticed, but this morning we read Exodus 22, and this evening we read Exodus 21. And the reason for that is I, I swapped it so that it would fit naturally to preach on it tonight. Um, otherwise, we would have read Exodus 21. Everybody would have had questions in their mind, and then I would have preached on John. And then we would come here tonight um, uh, and read Exodus 22. So I just switched it. We read Exodus 22 this morning. We read Exodus 21 tonight. And uh, I figured it would raise questions in our minds that I might as well just address as we providentially come to it. To be quite frank with you, Exodus 21 is probably the most difficult chapter in the Bible for me, personally. I have probably read through the Bible in its entirety over 20 times. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many of us started that habit when I was a kid. Um, and there was probably, I'm sure, a few years where I didn't get it done. Um, but for the most part, I've been reading through the Bible at least once a year for the last good long while, a couple of decades. And year after year, when I read through the Bible, I struggle with Exodus 21. Um, particularly, I have trouble with these sections. If he that is a slave... If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and who wouldn't? I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And also this part. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And also this part. 
When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And also this part. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Well, the problem for me when I read these laws is that I'd be inclined to view these laws as permissive and enabling of things that are wicked, and therefore wicked themselves, if I hadn't read them in the Bible. Just being honest, if I read about an ancient law code of some ancient society in National Geographic, or, you know, on, saw a documentary on the History Channel of some ancient society that had laws like this, I would think to myself, well, what a wicked society. But here it is in the Bible, which presents a quandary. Since I read them in the Bible, here's the predicament. Is God good? Is God's law righteous? Here are three considerations uh, as I've thought about this over the years. Um, to be honest, it's still, it's still something of a work in progress for me. And I'm learning and I'm thinking. And uh, my, my intention and my endeavor is to even trust God and submit to God on things that I just don't understand or things that I don't like. But here are three things, three considerations which help me as I work through Exodus 21 to still be a Christian at the end of it. First of all, I remember that slavery in the ancient world was not exactly equivalent to what we would tend to hear when we hear slavery. Because we're going to think of chattel slavery of Africans in the US and the Caribbean in the 17th to the 19th century. That's for us, it's inescapable that we're going to hear that when we hear slave and master because of our context. As we saw when we were working through Ephesians a couple of years ago, there were notable differences in the Greco Roman world of the first century the way slavery was practiced there and then, and the way slavery was practiced in more recent times in our context. Here's Tim Keller. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not the same as the New World institution that developed in the wake of the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's time was not race-based and was seldom lifelong. It was more like what we would call indentured servitude. There is good evidence that much of slavery was very harsh and brutal. But there is also lots of evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be, but lived normal lives, were paid a going wage, but were not allowed to quit or change employers, and were in slavery an average of 10 years. Prisoners of war often became slaves, and men could be sentenced to being galley slaves for crimes. 
A person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times. Often the result was an indentured servitude, or, or was an indentured servanthood for years until the debts were paid. To our surprise, slaves could own slaves, and many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants. And one more quote on this from Don Carson. In his book, Race and Culture, African-American scholar Thomas Sowell points out that every major culture, every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. Well, it could be tied to military conquests, usually slavery served an economic function. They didn't have bankruptcy laws, so if you got yourself into terrible hawk, you sold yourself and or your family into slavery. As it was discharging a debt, slavery was also providing work. It wasn't necessarily all bad, at least it was an option for survival. Please understand me, Carson says, I'm not trying to romanticize slavery in any way. However, in Roman times there were menial laborers who were slaves, and there were also others who were the equivalent of distinguished PhDs who were teaching families. And there was no association of a particular race with slavery. In American slavery, though, all blacks and only blacks were slaves. That was one of the peculiar horrors of it, and it generated an unfair sense of black inferiority that many of us continue to fight to this day. End quote. I found out while studying through the book of Ephesians that even the Roman governor, governor Felix, who's mentioned in Acts 23 and 24, used to be a slave. And as Pastor Chris Powell pointed out to me, at one point when we were talking about this issue, it would be unthinkable during the slave era of the history of the United States that a black slave would become the governor of Mississippi, for example. Just totally unthinkable. This demonstrates that slavery in the ancient first century Roman world was markedly different from the 17th to 19th century chattel slavery uh, that was practiced even right here in Barbados. And it would have been the same with slavery in ancient Israel. That's not the same as first century Greco-Roman slavery in which Paul lived, right? Because we're talking about millennia earlier even than that. But it would have been the same with slavery in ancient Israel. It was regulated in such a way that it could never become the equivalent of modern era chattel slavery. Which was most certainly sinful. For example, Exodus 21, 16 in the midst of this difficult passage, we also do read this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, the stealing of a man, or the possession of a stolen man, carries with it the death penalty. So, kidnapping is out of bounds immediately. So there never could have been a slave trade like the African chattel slavery where there was kidnapping and then the selling of slaves. That just could not happen in ancient Israel. Then the intentional killing of a slave, according to Exodus 21, would render someone guilty of a murder, according to verse 20. And in verses 26 and 27, we read that a slave is to be free if he loses an eye or a tooth while being beaten. 
Laws like this at least restrain brutality. So there is a noticeable difference between what Exodus 21 describes as slavery and what we tend to automatically hear when we hear the word. Some commentators really bend over backwards to be like, look at, look at how righteous these laws are, how great they are for, for human flourishing and for thriving. You know, look, like the, if, a, if a female is a slave, then she has to have food, clothing, and marital rights. And, and look, you weren't allowed to knock out the tooth or the eye of your slave while beating him. So look at, look at how benevolent and wise and good and for flourishing these laws are. I, I really struggle with that. But, but I do see that there is some restraint. And I do see that there is uh, some limitations to brutality. Some limitations to inhumane treatment in this passage. And that does help me somewhat. So that's the first point. But what about verses 20, 21, 20 and 21, in which we read, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Doesn't that condone the brutal beating of slaves? And both male and female? So a male slave master takes a female slave out back and beats her? And if she dies after a day or two, she's not to be avenged because the slave is his money? That's, that's literally what the Bible says. And that makes me extremely uncomfortable. And just thinking about the difference between ancient Israelite slavery and modern chattel, modern day 17th and 19th century African chattel slavery doesn't totally get me over that hump. It mitigates my concerns somewhat, but I still really struggle with this. Doesn't this endorse the mentality of treating people like possessions? instead of as fellow image bearers of God? Let's consider one more principle that helps us work through Exodus 21 and stay Christian. God's civil law merely regulates sin as opposed to, prescri as opposed to prescribing it. God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, show us what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, should I be a slave? What do you think? There is no, thou shalt not beat a slave. But as we understand that the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments are prohibitions of categories of sin, such that Jesus tells us that even if we are unjustifiably angry with someone, that falls under the prohibition of murder. Even if we lust after somebody, that falls under the prohibition of adultery. Can't you see then that the prohibition of murder would also prohibit the brutalizing of another human being? The Ten Commandments show us what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing. God's moral law provides for us the bullseye, if you will, in terms of the way society ought to function and the way that we ought to treat one another. 
God's civil law, on the other hand, explains what needs to happen in ancient Israel when one of the Ten Commandments is already broken. The best way to explain this principle or to illustrate this principle might be to turn to Matthew 19 where we read this. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That was Jesus' answer. So at that point, Jesus had basically said, no, it's not, it's not ideal to divorce. That's not what God intends. They said to him, why then did Moses command one, notice that word, why did then did Moses command one to issue a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And listen to Jesus' answer now. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Do you see what transpires in this passage? The Pharisees asked why Moses commanded divorce if it was sinful. And Jesus reframes it as mere permission, as a concession to the hardness of man's heart. In other words, though divorce ought not to happen, according to the Seventh Commandment, God has taken into account that the Seventh Commandment will be broken. And so what happens when the Seventh Commandment is broken? And God has regulated what is permitted to happen under the circumstances when the Seventh Commandment is broken. God has decided to regulate sin in order to mitigate and manage sin's deleterious effects on society. It doesn't follow that since God regulates divorce, that God commands it or even approves of it. There may be things that, this is what we need to understand, that's just an analogous point. The transferable principle is this. There may be things regulated by the civil law of God, which are themselves sinful, but God is being realistic and accounting for the fact that people are still going to do these sinful things. And so he speaks to what should happen if and when people do sinful things. It's like if you have a babysitter come to watch your children. And you tell the babysitter, don't let the children have any cookies. And the babysitter asks, what should I do if they take one? The mere fact that you answer the question and prescribe a response for what the babysitter should do if a child steals a cookie does not mean that you approve of stealing cookies. You're simply being realistic that what is ideal and what is prescribed may not actually happen, so what do we do then? 
This happens all the time in civil codes of every nation. I don't know of any nation where murder is legal. And so, and, and yet nevertheless, every society has legislation about what happens when murder occurs. Does that mean that the Barbadian government approves of and condones murder? Because they have a statement like, if murder happens, then this is the penalty? Of course not. Governments have set out ideals in terms of how citizens ought to behave, which would be equivalent to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. But, but governments also have legislation in place for what happens when citizens fail to live up to the ideal and when the way people should live is not the way they actually do live, what happens then? Likewise, we have to understand the Old Covenant, uh, again, in this threefold division, which we studied a couple of months ago, moral, civil, ceremonial. This was comprehensive legislation for a nation state which included not only believers in God, Christians if you will, although I know that that's anachronistic, but this included people who were unbelievers and who eventually ended up in hell for not trusting in the promise of the Messiah, for rebelling against God. And so God takes into account that this is a nation state which needs both instruction about the ideal way to live, what they ought to be doing, and so he gives them the Ten Commandments. But God also takes into account that they're going to break the Ten Commandments. And so he provides civil legislation in terms of what happens in various circumstances when the Ten Commandments are broken. It doesn't mean that God condones the breaking of the Ten Commandments. So the fact that the Bible speaks to the question of what if you beat your slave and he dies? Does not mean that God approves of beating your slave. Rather, this is to be understood as God being realistic that some people will do evil things. And what should happen if and when people in ancient Israel do evil things? Now, in that particular case, God prescribes that if and when something evil, like beating your slave till he dies, happens, then the killer should be held accountable for murder. If he dies right away under the hand of the slave master in ancient Israel, then it was obviously such a severe beating that could well have been known to lead to death, and so the killer should be held accountable for the presumably intentional death of the slave. But on the other hand, if the slave survives a day or two and then dies, it seems that the logic of this passage is that the slave master presumably did not intend to kill the slave. And so the prescribed punishment is less severe. The way that in our modern era we distinguish, say, between first degree murder, second degree murder, manslaughter, something like that is what's happening in this passage. And so the slave master will not be guilty of first-degree murder in this case, but will merely suffer the pecuniary penalty, that's money-related penalty, of lost labor due to the loss of his slave. He has acted in a way that is not in his own best interest, and that is deemed 
to be punishment enough in this case. So these penalties are God's regulation of evil rather than God's prescription of evil. This isn't God saying it's okay to beat slaves. This is God saying, realistically, people are evil and some people are going to be slaves and this is what should happen if and when that evil occurs in ancient Israel. So the first two principles that help me work through Exodus 21 and stay Christian in spite of the difficulty of a passage like this, which is the most, like I say, the most difficult passage in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. This is the one I, I, I have the hardest time stomaching. This is the one I have the hardest time reading. But it's in the Bible, so we could either just stay in the New Testament and close our ears and cover our eyes and say, well, I don't read the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in there I don't get and I don't want to deal with that. Or we can look at it and open it up and try to understand what's actually happening here. The first two principles that help me work through a difficult and, and stomach-churning passage like this are, first, as I said, slavery then was not identical to what we would think of immediately when we hear the word slavery, which would be the African slave trade, chattel slavery between the 17th and 19th century. That is not the same thing as what we see in slavery in the ancient world. And secondly, God is not approving of things that the civil law speaks to, but God is merely regulating what do we do when the Ten Commandments are already broken, as any government has penalties for what happens when the laws are broken. God does the same in the Old Covenant. Those two first two principles mitigate for me, but don't eliminate entirely my discomfort and my difficulty with the passage like this. Just being honest with you. I don't now just say, yeah, I'm totally at peace with Exodus 21. Makes complete sense to me. I get it. I accept it. I still have a hard time. Here's the third principle that helps me. God is God. And he is the norming norm. Let me explain that. As Romans 9 asks, who are you to answer back to God? Where do we get our norms about good and evil? When you think of what is good, when you think to yourself of what is evil, where do those thoughts come from? The media? Your family of origin, your circle of friends, you just think the things that are right are the things that you and your friends like, and the things that are wrong are the things that you and your friends don't like. You think that the things the media tells you are right and wrong are right and wrong. Where do you get your norms? What is the norming norm of your norms? What sets your norms? Where do your norms come from? Where have they been, and by whom have they been established? You understand, we, we, have, we all have in our hearts and our minds a set of norms. We think, hey, this is normal, this is good, this is right. Okay, that's abnormal, that's bad, that's wrong. We all have norms. Where do those come from? 
What sets those? It should be God. Whatever God says, by definition, can be evil. So if I have a problem with something that God says, something is skewed in me, not skewed in God. If God says something and I'm like, I don't like that, it's not because God is bad, it's because I'm bad. So if God's law says something, how can I say it's not wise? If God's law says something, how can I say it's not prudent? If God's law says something, how can I say it's not judicious? If God's law says something, how can I say it's too strict or it's too lax? Let us be careful of the heart dynamic when reading scripture, of sitting in judgment over God and challenging Him rather than being challenged by Him as He speaks to us in Scripture. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that God is not exactly as we would have Him to be. Or as our modern Western culture would have Him to be. If He was a product of our imaginations, then sure, if I imagined a God, He would probably be like I would want a God to be. I wouldn't imagine a God that I don't like and then refuse to worship him. If I invented a religion, I would invent a God that I'm totally comfortable with. And wouldn't you do the same? And if our culture invented a God, we would invent a God that we would be totally comfortable with. Who says, yeah, yeah, the things you like, those are good. The things you don't like, yeah, those are bad. So you're good and other people are bad. That's the kind of God we would invent. That's the kind of God we would want. But as God is a being who is not the product of any one culture, He will challenge each and every culture in some way. Now you might say, well John, God is the product of one culture. The ancient Jewish culture. God is the product of the imagination of Abraham's descendants. This is what the skeptic will say, right? Or somebody who wants to, to oppose the truth claims of Christianity. But look at the fact that God actually stands in judgment of ancient Israel. Look at the fact that there was never a time in Israel's history when even Israel was totally comfortable with Yahweh. Literally, right from when God sent Moses into Egypt to rescue the people from Egypt, they were like, leave us alone. This is too much trouble. Pharaoh's made our work even harder. We don't like your plan. We don't like the way you're rescuing us. Like literally from day one, even the ancient Israelites from whom these writings come to us, were uncomfortable with Yahweh. And when Jesus arrived on the scene many generations later to a later set of Israelites, 
Did they receive him? And they were like, yeah, you're a product of our culture. And we, we like everything about you because we formed you from our imagination. And so you don't challenge us in any way. You, you make complete intuitive sense to us because you're a figment of our imagination, a product of our imagination. Is that what happened when Jesus came? No. The scripture puts forth, sets forth to us, a God who has never fit exactly in with the nature and the norms of any culture on the face of the earth ever. Not even with the ancient Jews, which from a sociological, anthropological perspective would be the most likely candidates for a God who fits exactly like a puzzle piece with their pre-existing norms. Everywhere in scripture, God challenges everyone at some point. God is not exactly to anyone's liking. He's not exactly to my liking. He's not exactly to your liking. He's not exactly to the liking of Goliath and the Philistines. He's not exactly to the liking of any of the other pagan nations, the Babylonians. He doesn't fit with the Babylon system. But listen, he doesn't, listen to this, he doesn't fit with the Jewish system either. Listen to this. He doesn't even fit with the modern church system. Do you understand that God sits in judgment even over many of the beliefs and practices of the modern church? God even stands in judgment over us in this room tonight. There are ways that the scripture speaks to us and makes us uncomfortable and says something's wrong with you. There are ways that even we as a church need to feel the awkwardness and, and discomfort of the scripture. And when we find that God speaks and we don't like it, guess what? The problem is not on God's end. The problem is on our end. The second commandment says that we ought not to make any images of God. The most basic application is don't go home and get a block of wood and a little whittling knife and whittle for yourself a small wooden idol and then bow down to it. That's the most obvious and basic application of that commandment. But when we, when we say, I don't really like the way that God has revealed himself to be in the Bible, and I would prefer a different kind of God, so let me just sand off that rough edge there. And I don't really like this little piece of him here, so let me cut that off. And I don't really like, you know, the color or the shade here, so let me stain that with a little bit of stain. Do you realize that all we're doing is we're making a mental image of God that suits us? Rather than taking him as he is? Only if God was a product of our imaginations would he never make us uncomfortable. But since he's not a product of our own imaginations, he does at times make us uncomfortable. And then we have to settle this issue in our mind. Where do our norms come from? Who or what 
is ultimate to us. Our own intuition about what's right and wrong, what the media tells us is right and wrong, what our circle of friends tells us is right and wrong, or what God tells us is right and wrong. What is the norm in norm? For your norms, for my norms. You see, the first two considerations that I, that I provided to you tonight mitigate how difficult it is for me to read Exodus 21. But they don't entirely eliminate my discomfort with Exodus 21. But this is where the third consideration comes in. God is love. This passage of Scripture makes me uncomfortable. But I'm not at liberty to stand in judgment over God. He's the potter, I'm the clay. I can't say, why did you make me like this? Why did you make this world like this? Why is your word like this? What's wrong with you? I'm not at liberty to do that. God is God. If I don't like something about God, something's wrong with me. Not something wrong with God. As we read through the Bible, as we embrace Christianity and the Christian life, as we get more familiar with the scriptures, I guarantee, guarantee it, that each and every one of you will have devotions one morning and be like, wow, I don't like that. Something is going to rub you the wrong way. 100%. You will, you will not read through the Bible and like every single thing you read. Not going to happen. And so when you come to those things, you have this issue to settle. Am I only going to worship a God that suits me just fine? Or am I going to worship God as He is? Am I content with God as He is? Or am I going to sand off some edges and cut off this little piece here and paint that piece there to make God what I want Him to be? This is what you've got to deal with. This is what I've got to deal with as we come to difficult parts of Scripture. As we live the Christian life, we've got to acknowledge it's, it's okay, in a sense, to feel uncomfortable with certain parts of Scripture. That's part of the normal experience of maturing in Christ and growing in sanctification, is wrestling through these difficulties and pressing through these difficulties. We're coming into relationship with the person in God. And so the same way that like, you meet someone, maybe you're a single person, and you meet someone one day, you fall in love. And there is nothing wrong with this person. Everything is just right. You know, not, not just physically from the top of the head to the tips of the toes, but their personality is just something else. There is nothing wrong with this person. But as you get to know them, right? And one day you make some vows to one another and you get married. And as marriage goes, you start to realize not everything is just in my life. Not everything is just right. Yeah. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> As we get into deeper relationship with anyone, isn't this the way it is with another living being? You didn't marry you. You married someone else. And unless you worship you, 
God's not going to be just here like, hey, just as unless you marry you, your spouse isn't going to be just here like, when you marry other than you, when you worship other than you, there are going to be some things that are not quite to your fancy. And what do you do then? You either say, well, nah, I really just, I really just want an idol. A God that suits me just fine. And you reshape God. Or you bow with reverence and deference toward him and say, you're the potter and I'm the clay. And as the scripture teaches elsewhere, if me and God have a disagreement, it's not because something's wrong with her. It's because something's wrong with me. And you accept that. And you humble yourself before God. You say, I'm wrestling with this, but I still love you. I still want to worship you. Let's work through this together. Help me with this. In conclusion, let us bow with reverence and deference toward God. Let's accept the dynamic that He challenges us in Scripture and embrace that rather than insisting on continually challenging God. Let us appreciate rather than criticize his transcendence above every culture. Appreciate the fact that he's not a product of modern Western culture. If he was, he wouldn't be much of a God. But since he's not, he makes us uncomfortable. So let's appreciate God's transcendence above every culture. Trusting him, trusting him as the eternal one, rather than complaining that he's not an idol suited to modern Western preferences. <laughs>